You're listening to Focus on Utilities, brought to you by Power and Utilities Australia, the disruptor platform for Australia's utilities undergoing transition. Join us each month as we bring together diverse and divergent voices from the energy sector to unpack some of the key challenges and opportunities facing energy networks as they transition towards net zero. It's podcast time. Welcome to Focus on Utilities. If you're listening, thank you. We uh, are really glad to have you on board. I'm Paul Mathers, and this is the second in a series of podcasts from Power and Utilities Australia Leadership Summit. And today we talk about hydrogen, specifically unlocking the power of hydrogen for utilities. And it's an interesting conversation, hydrogen. It tends to be fairly divisive. In fact, the debate in Australia has evolved from hydrogen being the saviour technology to solve all of Australia's decarbonisation challenges to more recently, according to some at least, um, a costly and energy-intensive laggard. Pretty strong words, I suppose. But this tribalism in this debate reflects more overarching questions around the role of gas in the energy transition, despite hydrogen being a highly versatile element that can be produced from a variety of sources. There's no doubt of hydrogen's potential to revolutionise the energy industry, particularly in the hard-to-abate sectors. But when does this potential become reality? And as the debate continues, what is the viability for hydrogen within the utilities sector? Well, thankfully, we've got some interesting and knowledgeable people to join us today to answer those questions and more. And joining me as my co-host today is Stuart Allenson. Stuart has a background as an engineer in the oil and gas industry and more than 25 years in the energy and utilities industry. He's currently the energy transition partner for Startup Bootcamp and a member of our own Power and Utilities Australia advisory board. Good to see you again, Stuart. You too, Paul. Nice to be in person. Oh, it's always a pleasure to uh, to see you and talk with you in person. Stuart, the, the hydrogen debate continues to be divisive and the whole conversation around transition in general has become, and I'll use your words, somewhat tribal. Yeah, I, I am a very privileged person. I travel around the world talking to policymakers and corporates and dealing with lots of startups. That's my role with Startup Bootcamp. And, and I see everybody's trying to do lots of really good things, but the tribalism where it gets very frustrating, it's as if like there's one right answer and a dozen wrong ones. And I think that's starting to get into the way of, of a successful and rapid energy transition. Doesn't mean that everything's a panacea, but it also means that we've kind of got to find the right solutions in the right time frame. And if we can break out of that tribal conversation to engage around what's going to work, why a certain solution might work when others might not, or might be a complementary solution, then I think we'll be a whole lot better off. I think it's always important to have healthy debate around these issues, isn't it? Otherwise, we don't really get the best solutions. I'm a great fan of constructive disagreement. If we, <laughs> if we, if we get too much into our own, if you like, tribal bubbles, um, we'll make some very big calls and there's a very big risk of getting those calls wrong. And, and lots of money goes down the drain, of course, with that, doesn't it? Uh, it's part of the picture. There's a, there's a bigger game at play, of course, is, a, is the overall climate um, carbon content emissions um, releases. Um, so, yeah, there's money at, 
stake, um, but there's also, you know, uh, ecosystem viability at stake as well. Yeah, it's a whole of world problem, isn't it, that we've got to solve. And luckily, we've got a couple of experts joining us today, Stuart, who can help us, well, maybe not solve the problems of the world today, but at least uh, shed some light on some of them. So some of you listeners out there might be able to solve them. Um, Joining us is Amy Philbrook. Uh, Amy also has an engineering background. She spent more than 10 years in business development for bioenergy and renewable hydrogen at Arena, as well as stints at ATCO. And as a non-executive director at Bioenergy Australia. She's currently the Australian Hydrogen Technical Lead at Arup. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. And um, yeah, really appreciate the invitation and being part of this very important discussion. That's a pleasure. It's great to have you on board. And also joining us today is Bronwyn Yip. Bronwyn is a self-confessed renewable gas girl. Uh, You've got to be careful how you say that because it might sound like she's got digestive issues, but she told me she was a renewable gas girl with a background in gas and LNG. She has 25 years in energy. She's worked with Santos, AGL and Origin, and she's recently been appointed as a director at the Australian Gas Industry trust. Good to see you too again, Bronwyn. Thanks for having me here today, Paul. I'm so excited to be talking about the Hill of Hype and the Valley of Disappointment. <laughs> and you're struggling with a little bit of a, a throat thing as well, I can tell. Uh, I'm, I am too, so we'll uh, we'll hang in there for the half hour. Well, you know, it might get more sexy as we go along, but please excuse me for that. <laughs> oh dear. Well, we talk a lot about the potential for hydrogen, but what about the practical real time applications. Is all this hydrogen talk just high-flying theory or is it tangible reality? I love, Bronwyn, your comment about the hill of hype or the depths of despair. I misquoted that. But it seems to me that, you know, that even five years ago, maybe even 40 years ago, I talked to a lot of people in hydrogen. This has been a lifetime career for them that um, it sort of arrives with a sort of sense of panacea. It's going to solve humankind's problems and then there's a bit of a collapse. So can you talk us through a little bit about where that has started, where it's got to and where the resurrection might be? So I think we, as an industry, we always start with the hill of hype and, and, and in, a, in a way it's not that bad where we're really out there brainstorming, trying to see where this could fit um, as a solution. At the same time, we really saw the industry move towards a more decarbonised world and hydrogen sits squarely in the middle of that. What I do think it's time to do is really start looking at the practicalities of hydrogen and then focusing on those ones that we think fit us best. And for Australia, I don't think uh, we can just merely go through and try everything. We're not that kind of um, economy. What we should do, in my personal opinion, is really focus on the things that we're really good at already and how does hydrogen sit with that? And that's really where we're getting to, is that we're seeing a couple of different things evolve. One is the technology learning curve is hasn't been as steep and, and as um, friendly as what we thought it would be, and, and maybe that's coming. Uh, we're also seeing the practicalities of development and construction and regulatory compliance really come to the fore. The risks around financial uh, investment and the ability to secure capital funding 
uh, has come to the fore, but also more practical things like transportation of hydrogen. We haven't even gotten to the bottom of the vectors that we're going to really back and use, even though ammonia does look like it's going to be um, the vector of choice. So when we're looking at all these different um, practical and operational outcomes that have come to the fore, it's a great time for us to step back and say, well, for each country to step back and say, well, how are we going to use this technology that best suits our needs, our existing infrastructure and where we want to go in our carbon footprint? Yeah, Amy, I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well. Thanks, Bronwyn. Thanks for deep, deepening the discussion. Um, Amy, I know you've got experience on a number of continents. I'd love your thoughts on that. Uh, you know, what's the global problems that we're trying to solve with hydrogen and where do you think Australia can especially play? What are, what are Australia's capabilities? And, and let's bring it back to the utility grids that uh, may be part of that solution. Yeah, sure. And, and, you know, I'd like to say that, you know, I definitely agree with Paul and that hydrogen was four years ago going to solve everyone's energy problems. Um, and now we've kind of been in a position where we're, we're, we can learn from overseas as well as um, project development in, in Australia and, and really focus on, on where hydrogen can make an impact. Um, I think because the uptake of hydrogen has been slower than expected, um, that all avenues are still open. Um, and, and certainly we're seeing policy have a big impact on the hydrogen markets overseas and, and in Australia. Um, so, so in the United States, with the implementation of the IRA, they're, they're able to reduce the cost of hydrogen production through that policy mechanism and others. Um, and, and kind of what does that mean to Australia? So I think four years ago, it was very much that Australia was going to replace its fossil exports with hydrogen. Um, and, and as Bronwyn said, you know, we've had a reality check. Um, th there's other trading partners out there. But I wouldn't guess as to, as to what that that end story is for Australia. I think we're still in the development phase and, and still trying to figure out where hydrogen will fit into the energy market. Amy, with, with electrification proceeding at such a rapid pace and hydrogen being well behind the curve, I think, that we've gotten from these comments. Is there time for hydrogen to even catch up to have an impact? Can it catch up with that rapid progression of electrification? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a good question. And, you know, the uptake of electrification has been faster than hydrogen, and that is definitely a factor, um, as well as policy and as well as um, research and development, because there's been this kind of lull in, in hydrogen production in Australia, it does give research and development and technologies an opportunity to, to make an impact on um, the, the cost of hydrogen in, in, in the long term. Can hydrogen catch up? Um, you know, I, I think, again, we see that shift from four years ago when it was thought that hydrogen would, would play a role in passenger vehicles. And now because of the electrification um, and, and people really turning towards EVs for, for a number of reasons, it is unlikely that hydrogen will impact um, the, the passenger transport sector in the short term. 
So, so you're absolutely right. Electrification is a factor. Um, we're seeing it with passenger vehicles, but with other forms of transport, it's still relatively unknown. Um, as, as we're all kind of racing to decarbonize the transport sector. Bronwyn, you must have seen that tension, and obviously I don't want to put you on the spot about any one company, but you've got the wonderful privilege of having worked in several energy companies. The tension between that electrification of everything and then the role of, of hydrogen um, around that, it's a moving feast as well, five years, and you know batteries have dropped substantially in in price it's it's a very fast moving space and that's what makes it so wonderful i think is um the ability to use what all the things we have in our arsenal to help decarbonise. But I suppose having seen so many different types of uh, utilities, the one thing I can say for sure uh, is that hydrogen for baseload power generation is not favourable. Um, certainly there's questions around peaking and whether um, in the future that'll be something, but certainly this notion that um, we should uh, optimise for hydrogen uh, rather than conventional forms of um, renewable energy really isn't there at the moment in Australia. Yeah, L let's talk about that peaking um peaking uh, supply because uh, obviously GE Vanova have recently signed an agreement with CS Energy to provide um, hydrogen ready peaking generation units for Brigalow up in Western Downs in Queensland and it looks good on paper right you know this is fast starting technology it's great for peak periods but um, should we be seeing more of this uh, kind of technology impl uh, implementation on hydrogen from utilities because if we look at say hydrogen in the hunter with the scheme there it's, it's the costs are blowing out of control um it's only allowing for a 10 percent uh, currently for a 10 percent injection of hydrogen and it might well be redundant by the time um it, it it gets built anyway what are your thoughts on that so if we go back to how we usually dispatch it's sort of we look at different forms of energy storage that can be dispatched at different times in order to work out what goes first. So essentially, you know, we probably see batteries, short duration batteries that will be dispatched during peaking peri periods. Um, we might see more longer duration. We might see pumped hydro. You know, there are a whole wealth of different um, uh, methods that can be used by utilities to provide um, capacity during those peak periods. And the way that we look at it usually is by looking at the cost uh, to dispatch those particular um, types of technology. Where we get into issues with hydrogen is that it is potentially one of the more expensive technologies to dispatch. Yeah. And added to that, the actual um, capacity that's needed to um, make that available, so hydrogen storage, hydrogen infrastructure, hydrogen pipelines, they're going to be quite expensive as well. So it's for a utility to work out, well, how much um, hydrogen uh, peaking capacity it needs in its book, and it's going to be very hard for them to put a large swathe of that without increasing the overall cost of uh, generation within its uh, book. Now, we've heard from the community and um, from the RBA that we really don't want a whole lot of inflation in relation to energy, and um, I certainly don't. But um, 
it's if it's something we're going to have to think of that the the cost of that generation is going to have to increase if we shoehorn large quantities of hydrogen for for peaking in there. The area where this is very different and where we've been helped a lot is we've seen Korea and Japan, um, the governments in those countries are requiring their utilities to include um, low carbon um, ammonia in their generation. So they're, they're working up to about 25%. And so we will see those utility companies start to decarbonise by using um, a, a green hydrogen derivative or a blue hydrogen derivative. And I think that will allow us to build demand internationally and bring on Australian hydrogen projects and in doing so create that liquidity that's needed, that infrastructure that's needed to allow us to have... Um, hydrogen-fired peakers because that infrastructure is already there. You're not building that new hydrogen infrastructure just to run your peaker, you know, an, an hour a day in summer. So uh, that's where I think we could potentially, thanks to um, East Asia, start to see that happen. Amy, I'd love to bring you in and just make a comment on the way through that uh, I, I'm, I'm an early stage backer, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of experimentation. But the other side of that is... Um, the risk of reinventing the wheel. So to Paul's question and then to um, Bronwyn's response, do you, what do you see that landscape of, of early moves on developing generation capability in places like WA and Queensland and, and what are your observations about how that should focus or how it's evolving? Yeah, no, interesting question. <laughs> I think that we're definitely seeing the impact of policy on, on gas peakers. So, you know, it, it has become a state-by-state -state, um, landscape. So in South Australia, that is definitely focused on hydrogen production and, and gas peaking and, and green steel um, ha have committed a lot of funding towards um, that process. Um, likewise, in, in New South Wales, with, with the funding of Talawara B, um, a gas peaker that will um, is meant to take hydrogen, um, you know, it, it is kind of seeing that impact of, of policy. Um, I think that if, you know, understanding the difficulties in storing hydrogen um, at a gas peaker, that kind of leads you to talking about gas blending and green gas trading and, and certainly um, using the existing gas infrastructure as a storage mechanism to, to facilitate green gas trading um, in Australia. And, and certainly New South Wales is, is looking at this um, as, a, as a way of carbonizing um, gas in, in New South Wales. So it's an interesting thing that maybe where we're at in Australia is proving the technological integration and experimenting, but it's the big economic question that's hanging over us. And that storage issue, I, my sense is, um, I just don't think we've given that enough airplay. It, it's got the potential to really blow out costs. Are you seeing that? The storage of hydrogen is going to be a key factor in the economics of running gas peakers. But again, a way of overcoming that is producing hydrogen when electricity is cheap and storing it in the gas distribution network. 
um, so that gas peakers can then um, use gas that is green through green gas trading. So so agree with the storage issue. Um, but again, we're seeing states like in South Wales support um, the trade of green gas through gas distribution networks. Yeah, so we've seen a, a range of different policy implementations come out of New South Wales to inspire, you know, the supply of hydrogen. And the, the big one is the renewable gas target. And I, I find it a bit of a challenging policy for me to get behind. And this is a policy a target where... Um, uh, utilities have to surrender um, certificates that show that they have backed a certain proportion or amount of um, hydrogen production, but it's linked to the gas. Um, and so for me, it's it's mums and dads that end up paying for this certificate, but potentially they're not the ones that are really going to be using the hydrogen. Um, hydrogen is probably at this point used very close to the supply point, um, not sort of blended in and provided as a, as a complete substitution uh, for hydrogen. So I think it's very hard as a, uh, the effect of it is, is that, you know, um, you know, granny who's trying really hard to pay for their gas bill will be um, paying for the ramp up and supply of, of hydrogen more generally. And I find that really, really hard as a policy um, mechanism. It's sort of, I think, a blunt instrument. But I do believe that policy intervention is desperately needed to increase um, hydrogen supply and as a bit of an economic um, disillusionist realist altogether, um, I really believe it has to come through demand. And if we can um, have that demand, then the system um, can ramp up and the utilities will be part of that infrastructure play. But that demand has really got to come from um, big heavy industry. And my conjecture is that we need to see it come through things like green steel, um, we need to see it come through ammonia and fertiliser products and um, explosives. And, and in that way, we can supply the hydrogen close to those um, industrial manufacturers of those types of products. And in doing so, uh, create um, significant demand and the infrastructure, a wider infrastructure needed to have it as an energy source or an energy capacity play. And I think that's where we might see differences when we're looking at the new hydrogen um, pathways is really focusing on that demand and how can policy um, work to create that wider demand play and in doing so really tackle those parts of the value chain or our export dollars that Australia already is very competitive in and, and plays a large part and continues to support those jobs that we need in those industries. Uh, I'm getting a sense of deja vu, but there's a good point to it because the solar renewable energy target went through a very similar path, didn't it? That it was it was subsidising to bring down the overall costs, but the beneficiaries often were the early adopters and the people who paid for it were the people who couldn't afford solar but paid high network charges. Just to tease out your point, what, mm. you, what, I think, what, what I hear you saying is we need our policy to be more focused on where the demand picture economically should be, like say, for example, in industry, and then tailoring policy around that outcome rather than 
trying to get everybody to bear those, yeah, unbearable costs of, of an energy transition? Yes, I think that's where it, it comes from. And I think it comes from, as you say, that point in the cycle, we are quite a nascent period. And we're really looking at technology that for it to be economic needs to have high utilisation and high efficiency. So those electrolyzers, for it really to run, uh, you know, we're needing them to have a utilisation of 80 to, uh, 80 to 100% for them to really, to really get to those levels of commerciality. That doesn't really work if you're only going to be running your electrolyzers for a super peaker. And so what, what are those industries and what are those demand sources that can and require energy at that 80 to 100% of the time? And it is, you know, the smelters or um, those processes that can't easily be turned on and off. And um, let's back those um, and, and create those green products that we know the rest of the world is really looking for. You know, wouldn't it be great to, to drive around in a, a green um, BMW or Audi right in the future? So, Amy, if, if it is about that um, using hydrogen maybe stored in the gas network to support the high utilisation electrical uh, applications, particularly in, in industry, is that, does that align with your thinking that, and the corollary question? is do we need to get our gas up to 80% hydrogen to support that? Yeah, I mean, again, it, it, it's a good question. I think that um, I, I definitely agree with Bronwyn that there are um, hard-to-abate sectors um, that should be supported for hydrogen. Um, if, if we look at ammonia, most of the hydrogen use in Australia, if, if we kind of start to focus on demand is in the manufacture of, of ammonia. So there is a demand thing. There is a process that runs um, continuously. And in order to decarbonize, you can either capture the carbon from the steam methane reforming process, or you can change the hydrogen source from, from gray hydrogen to green. So so definitely agree that that demand thing is, is one that could be supported. Um, by policy in Australia. In terms of storing 80% hydrogen in the gas distribution network, um, you know, I think early steps and, and we are seeing the gas distribution companies put in money um, to support hydrogen blending and, and those types of steps shouldn't be ignored. So so we, we talk about figures like 10 or 20%. Um, I'm going to put an age on me now. I remember growing up when in the UK when we were getting this amazing stuff from the North Sea called natural gas and it replaced stuff that I didn't know much about was town gas, but that was over 40% hydrogen, wasn't it? So getting back to higher levels of hydrogen is is not the technically difficult thing that it's often painted to be. Thoughts? Yeah, so I think, again, this is an area that everyone's kind of investigating um, you know, when when do you have to change over material to be 100% hydrogen compatible? It's it's a complicated piece. Um, it's not just the gas distribution network. It, it would also be any users of hydrogen in their home and what does that mean to their appliances? Uh, and certainly, you know, 
people interested in this area are looking at it, including all of the gas distribution companies. Um, and so it's difficult to say, like, what that plan is, what it should be, and what it will mean. Because um, as we've all kind of pointed out, we're in this time period of discovery um, and, and really trying to understand what, what that pathway will look like. Thanks, Amy. The Bronwyn, I, sure. I've spent my life um, in utilities thinking that old phrase, if that's where you're trying to get, I wouldn't start from here. You know, we look at our electricity grids now, and in fact, it's happening in WA, aren't it? They're decommissioning transmission and power lines and going to microgrids. If we had a crystal ball, would we be creating a gas network that was like micro networks serving local industries rather than carrying the cost of moving hydrogen renewable gas, you know, right the way through, say, the eastern seaboard? So I think we will start to see the advent of uh, microgrids because that's really very policy-driven and and we can see how that might work uh, with renewable energy. What hasn't really worked along that vein is the hydrogen hubs strategy, which I was a big fan of, but what's sort of playing out in these hydrogen hubs and the original idea was that you would have hydrogen supply and then you would create um, hubs of hydrogen demand around them and that would potentially require you to move your demand to the supply and what's happened is that we don't have enough heavy industry that's willing to move their operations. And so we're having to ask that age-old question again when it comes to hydrogen is, are you moving your molecules or your electrons? And I'm starting to think we're moving our electrons. Um, but what we need to sort of work together on is really to understand how do we connect supply and demand in the most efficient way and is a large infrastructure play what we're really working towards, as you say. At the same time, we're starting to see gas networks really um, be bear the brunt of some big political questions. So in Victoria, uh, we're really looking at no more new gas connections uh, and really looking to see um, are there policies in place that could decrease our reliance on 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 natural gas in the home. We'll get to a point where the cost to serve the, um, gas networks uh, will be very expensive if we do not have increasing numbers of new connections. And people will come off gas, either they'll love their new induction gas, uh, sorry, induction electric cooktopper, uh, or we'll just say, look, you know, I, I just can't afford it. My, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to switch everything over to electricity because my fixed charge for my gas is too high. And so what we'll see is either a, a steep decline to disconnection from gas or a, uh, or a cliff. And, and I'm hoping that cliff is sort of into the 2030s or 2040s. Uh, but what we really need to see is that are we going to have that intersection between the decline in natural gas usage for these networks, not the transmission lines, but the networks, with a ramp up and liquid supply of hydrogen at a price that can be blended into the gas network without a whole lot of subsidy. I'm not too sure when that intersectionality happens or if it happens um, in a way for residential usage. Um, 
But it's certainly one that requires a lot of modelling and a lot of thinking, particularly by an, uh, a market operator, and I, I'm pretty sure they're onto it. And I think it will be interesting to see how this plays out and then the effects for utilities in that are they um, ramping up to provide these types of gases for big industrials and a declining um, residential or will the advent of... Um, hydrogen allow for these um, networks to continue potentially not in Canberra or Victoria? I just wanted to uh, say in, when you referred to liquid supply, presumably you're talking about trading and price as, as Amy does rather than uh, cryogenic supply of uh, hydrogen. Oh, you've got to love an LPG though. <laughs> no, no, liquidity and depth in the market was what I was after, but yeah, never it, write off an LPG tank. Interesting theme that's come out. I, I do, um, do want to point out a uh, uh, attended a presentation by the chief engineer of the uh, Wyala hydrogen hub and that seems to disprove that general observation. Uh, my observation would be about it that they've taken a very visionary approach to employment, to leveraging existing infrastructure but there's another degree of it which I see as optionality. It's like they don't have a complete unified view of what that end business case will be but if they've got enough of the supply and the demand together in the one place, it'll kind of work itself out. It's a bit of field of dreams, isn't it? Build it and they will come. They will what come. If, um, if and and it's build it and they will come. And um, please, where is my subsidy check? Thank you, South Australian Government. We, um, we all would welcome a further conversation about the relative subsidies. But Amy, you've been very patient there. You've got an observation and comment on that? Um, I, I think that it's just in, a, in agreement with what you're saying, Stuart. Like you definitely see the impact of policy um, on w what a hydrogen hub might look like. Um, and Wyella is a good example of that. Um, you know, the question of whether or not that's a good use of public funds, Bronwyn, like I think that's to be debated. Um, and exactly what you say, we're seeing these differences in, in places like Canberra and South Australia very much hinged on um, government policy and support. That, that um, use of public funds, it reminds me of the old advertising adage, 50% of advertising wasted, we just don't know yet which is the 50%. <laughs> so maybe maybe that's the point that we've got to... We've got to do these experiments. We've got to learn fast, but we've got to have a bit of a vision about where this this might play out. I want to just bring the conversation back to consumers, which um, Bronwyn touched on earlier, you know, because they end up paying, you know, it's, it's very expensive for them. Um, my sense of it is, being a consumer, as we all are, my, my sense of it is, a lot of people are just hanging on to their gas connections for the moment. These are the pre-existing ones. And not necessarily uh, switching straight to full electrification because they don't know, and no pun intended, they don't really know what's in the pipeline for them with regards to gas. We've got AGIG who created the hydrogen house and there's a sense there, uh, I suppose, for consumers that um, there is a solution coming. Are utilities thinking about this part of the equation and, and how they can assist uh, these people, lots of them, particularly in Victoria with these pre-existing gas uh, connections, that, um, you know, are, are reticent to let go of them? 
I think if you ring your friendly gas utility, um, they can give you a whole lot of different options and how you can decarbonise your home. Uh, that's the plug for them, so go for <laughs> it. They are out there. Um, there is a bit of a research um, avenue that needs to be done and there's lots of helpful comparators and uh, websites from various governments, particularly state governments, that can give consumers a bit of a look through into how that can happen. I would just say it's going to be an expensive exercise on the comp- on the appliance side. Um, so if we look at the Leeds City Gate hydrogen feasibility study that happened in the UK and and it, 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 that study is brought about and people talk about it as the test case to show that 100% hydrogen can be used. And it was great and I, I used it to convince everybody that my tinfoil hat I was wearing um, <laughs> was one of gold and not tin. But when you dig into the detail... One of the outcomes is they've forecasted a $2 billion cost to change over the appliances just in that, so not £2 billion, sorry, in that region alone. And I think that's a big cost if we're switching all over at the same time. Yeah. It's still a huge cost. But what I think we'll find is a lot of those appliances will be done on a rolling basis as appliances get to their end of asset life. Uh, So we will see it happen, but the question for a householder will be, well, do I switch to a hydrogen appliance at the end of this or do I switch to an electric appliance? Now, my husband loves the fact that he generates his own power through his solar panels on the roof and he looks at his little app and goes, you know what, I sent $2.50 to the grid. And and this, (laughs) this notion that Australians love to generate their own power. And so they love to use their own power as well. It's a bit harder to generate or produce your own natural gas from the ground. It's a little bit more expensive. But I think this is the thing is that there is this joy of being able to and an understanding of your solar panels and how you use it in the home. And so I think there'll be a natural preference when people get to the end of their asset life for their um, appliances to potentially go for the electricity ones rather than the hydrogen. You raise a great point about transition rather than the old everything everywhere all at once. And if there's one criticism of the IEA that it was, it's done some fantastic work, but it sort of said if we need to be here at 2050, we need to be there at 2030, and now we're kind of meeting the, well, what's the bottom analysis that, that kind of gets us there. So this idea of, I'm going to come back to a regulatory point. Do you think it's a regulator's or a policymaker's challenge to give the gas networks a certain amount of time to decarbonise before their regulated asset bases get undercut. Quick historic note, I used to be a great fan, complex, but a great fan of the depreciated optimised replacement cost of network assets. Long title, but it basically said if you were going to build a network of a certain age from now, you wouldn't necessarily configure it that way. And that was a great way of curtailing, if you like, um, uh, excessive investment in, in overbuilding the grid. So do we come back to this is where policymakers have to set a very clear end game for the gas networks to get there? Amy, do you want to jump in on that one? Yes, I do. I'm just going to answer that in a slightly different way, though, Stuart. So I think that... Um, 
you know, I, I was at the ANU for a long time as a research fellow. I'm a big fan of R&D and technology development. And, and part of what we haven't discussed today is this focus on e-fuels in, in the long term. So we're seeing Japanese gas distribution companies look at e-methane, um, so the, the, the capture of carbon, um, the production of a hydrogen to make methane. Um, we're, we're seeing interest in ESAF, um, similar production pathway, capturing the carbon, producing the hydrogen, and, and therefore making a, a, a replacement fuel for hydrocarbon-based fuels, in, in, including natural gas. So I think that, uh, you know, of course, every commercial decision um, has to factor in asset and asset lifetime, but one of the hydrogen pathways um, in the medium to long term could be the production of e-fuels, which doesn't require um, the, the transition of materials or assets or infrastructure to accommodate. You, you, Amy, thanks for bringing it up. And you've reminded me yeah. back to this whole tribal um, challenge that I, I see. I, I sometimes wish that if every Australian that's involved in the energy transition spend a bit of time in the region, they'd get a completely different perspective on what's driving countries like Japan, which is, which is an energy security issue as much as, as it is a decarbonisation issue. And our opportunity is huge if we understand what our domestic requirements are as well as our export markets. But I know that's not the focus of today, but I, I did want to make that comment, maybe for another podcast, Paul. Maybe, Stuart. Uh, uh, Bronwyn, did you have a <laughs> thought on that? Yes, yeah, so I spent a lot of time in the region really talking about energy transition and just transition and coal phase out. But whenever I'm in Japan and I'm talking to politicians, their first thing they say is, well, you've got to have domestic demand too. You, it can't just be that you you create supply and send it all offshore and um, just expect us to buy it. And certainly this is not this appetite that they had at the beginning of the LNG boom, which was really to be there solely to underwrite these projects in a way that would provide, you know, 20 years of, of solid profit. And um, that that's changed and certainly the need to invest in and be part of these projects is very important. Also, the pricing, I think, will change. So what we're seeing is blocks of buyers starting to go out and, and buy uh, the green, um, the low-carbon ammonia and they're not doing it in a way uh, that they're fighting against each other. So we're seeing uh, Korea and Japan work together to purchase uh, green ammonia, uh, as much as we're seeing um, the Dutch and the Germans uh, buying a block. So what we're probably seeing for pricing is a very different one. Uh, we're seeing a cost plus approach rather than linking to the next best alternative pricing, which is sort of LNG based. So I think what we'll do is we'll start seeing um, purchases happen. We'll start seeing them um, happen a very different geopolitical way um, that we're used to. And we'll also see the effects of IRA come through, which I think I'm hearing, we might hear next week, about what 
intensity of carbon is needed to uh, to obtain um, IRA funding. So there is a notion that blue hydrogen will still attract mm -hmm. um, subsidies, which is very different to what we think in Australia, which is it must be um, very low, car uh, low carbon and in, in that it must be sort of that green level or below or renewable. Um, but you also see from East Asia, they're not too worried about the colour. They're really just worried about the, the low carbon intensity. So we may see a bit more of a switch uh, towards blue um, hydrogen uh, projects with um, the IRA and certainly Australia is well placed to look at CCS and how we could move that forward and that really is something that utilities may decide to get more involved in is this this new business of taking other people's carbon and, and sequestering it, um, particularly underground. Interesting. Interesting. I've been party to a lot of policy discussion around emissions intensity rather than rainbow colours because at the end of the day people want to know what it is, but that's a supply chain issue, not just a point of delivery issue. But I do want to come back to the supply chain because there's a hint in what you said about that collaborative approach to projects is, is to me is the is what I'm seeing right across multiple sectors with the energy transition is is a supply chain collaboration. Um, which has different implications for, for, if you like, the business model and the car, the partnering risk acceptance as well. Uh, Amy, do you th do you see that as this is the way we're going to iterate through finding that sweet spot or those sweet spots for um, hydrogen? And do you think it's got an implication for how utilities engage with the supply chain? Yes, I mean, I, I guess that, you know, hydrogen presents a, a complicated um, supply chain, um, especially when you're looking at international markets. Um, definitely agree with you, Stuart, that having the colors is not helpful. You know, the, the end game is reducing carbon emissions and everything should be talked about in terms of carbon intensity and, and carbon impact um, and really a, a move away from colors. I think that green, green hydrogen in um, Australia has been adopted as the pathway forward and, and we're definitely not seeing that in Canada and the United States in particular. Currently, it's, it's ARENA that's supporting the hydrogen projects in Australia, and, and the requirement is for that to be 100% um, green hydrogen. And, and I think that has had an impact on people not um, focusing on the carbon capture of steam methane reforming, which is currently called blue hydrogen. We're all on different journeys, aren't we? And we all have different ideas about how we've got to get there, but we've all got to get there at the end of the day. I think we've covered a, a huge breadth of information today, which has been fantastic. I'd just um, ask you, Amy, if you've, you've got any final comments before we start wrapping up. No, I don't. I think it's important to keep these discussions happening. We are definitely noticing the change in conversation in, in the last four years. And that's been really picked up well today. Like it, it, hydrogen was going to be the answer for everything. And, and now there's this real opposition to hydrogen, which I would actually argue is useful um, that, you know, it, it's good because when the hydrogen industry or the emergent hydrogen industry was expected to solve all the energy problems, that that's just an unrealistic 
objective. And, and of course, you know, it wasn't going to succeed the, you know, it just kind of sets up the industry for failure basically. And now that we're having these discussions and, and talking openly and, and really the, the, the learning journey is incredibly fast paced. And I suspect that the conversation in a year's time will, will be different again. So very much appreciate the conversation um, and, and the dialogue and the different points of view. Bronwyn? So I think I've been a little bit downbeat in this conversation. I'd like to just add, look, the future is bright for hydrogen. You know, next year, will we all be talking about the Hydrogen Head Start program and, and the billions of dollars that could be available for that? And and that's really a way that we can really kickstart and, and have that conversation and really start to find new solutions for hydrogen. So I think the colours of the rainbow aren't so great for hydrogen, but certainly there's a bright future ahead. Lots of rainbows in the sky. Absolutely. Well, you know, there's a long conversation to be had and it is ongoing. And of course, you can join the conversation at Power and Utilities Australia Leadership Summit from the 7th to the 8th of May next year at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Thank you, Bronwyn. Thank you, Amy, for joining us today. You've been a wealth of knowledge and a pleasure to have uh, in our podcast. And Stuart, um, as always, thank you for joining me uh, to co-host um, we would be inauthentic if we didn't have your expertise behind the mic. Pleasure, and thank you for involving me in a very enlightening conversation. Thank you. Always a pleasure, and thank you to everyone listening. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again next month when we discuss issues around social licence and just transition in the energy transition. But until then, goodbye. You've been listening to Focus on Utilities, brought to you by Power and Utilities Australia, the disruptor platform for Australia's utilities undergoing transition. Join us in person at the Power and Utilities Australia Leadership Summit and Expo in Melbourne, 7th to 8th of May 2024.